So uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, which is where we sort of left off last week. We did chapter 6 and ventured into chapter 7. We'd like to begin reading this morning, picking up in verse 17, and we will read down to verse 36. Uh, It goes to verse 60, we'll finish the chapter, but as far as our reading this morning and gaining some perspective, we'll start right there in verse uh, 17. So the word of God reads as follows. But when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. And have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years." Lord, would you take your word and teach us and apply it to our hearts this morning. And as you teach us and as you lead us, Lord, may our hearts and our minds and our understanding be opened by your spirit to understand all these things that Stephen was speaking to these religious leaders. And then, Lord, make the crossover for how does that uh, impact us today where we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may recall that last week as we looked at chapter 6, the appointing of the first deacons or the proto-deacons as we called them, 
one of the men in that list of people who was considered was this man, Stephen. And back in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, just to redirect your attention, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And then a little bit later in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and then the other men who are listed. So this man, Stephen, now we're focusing on his story, which we picked up at the back half of chapter 6. And then moving into chapter 7, we see Stephen being brought before the Sanhedrin, the council, the same group that punished earlier Peter and John, and the same group, incidentally, that tried our Lord Jesus and, and uh, sentenced him to crucifixion on a cross. So this man, Stephen, who was serving there among the people, he was a Hellenistic Jew. Um, he believed in the Lord Jesus, but he, believed, he sort of came out of and was a part of the Jewish culture. And so now he's standing before this group of men, this group of people, who are judging him because he he stood up and and took a strong witness on behalf of the Lord, and he began to do signs and wonders. And anyone who began to do miracles and signs and wonders in those days was immediately brought in and questioned before the Sanhedrin, especially if they spoke in the name of Jesus. And then a little later in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, And then in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then we ended chapter 6 and verse 15, where it says, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So this man, Stephen, a table waiter serving the the widows and, and the poor people of the day, God had filled him with this Holy Spirit. And remember, we looked at this last week, that God's standard for serving in his church is to be full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of power, because these things are important. They matter to God. And we talked a little bit last week about how it was important to have people who were full of the Spirit, uh, because as they were serving other people, disputes arose, and they needed to be able to responsibly and and in a very kind and loving way, resolve those disputes with people. So this man, Stephen, was raised up by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, and he was sort of thrust into the limelight. And as we entered into chapter 7 last week, we began to see, as you read there, that Stephen was standing before the high priest and and the council. And in those first few uh, sections that we read, uh, 1 through 8 and then 9 through 16, we see what, state, what Stephen is doing here, uh, much as what Peter did on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gave him a message sort of live in his mouth, uh, Peter, that is, on the day of Pentecost, and Peter preached a, a message, and a, a part of the element of that message was calling the religious leaders out and helping them understand that they had rejected their Messiah, they missed him. And so he's preaching Jesus to them so that they might understand who Jesus was. And then again in uh, Acts chapters 3 and 4 is Peter and John going up to the temple about the hour of prayer. We're walking in and the lame man was laying there and their schedule was, was disrupted. 
And they ended up healing that man, and that created the commotion. And now all of a sudden they're preaching to a couple of thousand people gathered there in the court of the temple. Um, They're preaching Jesus, and in the course of preaching Jesus, they're preaching about how the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus and how they had sentenced him to death. And now we have Stephen doing the same thing, except now what Stephen is doing, and again, the Holy Spirit giving him this message, as you look at the headings, and these headings can be very helpful to us sometimes, we see that he goes back and he looks at uh, the history of Israel. And what he's attempting to do is to not to not so much to educate them on something that they knew, but to, to point to the fact that there were spiritual lessons in their history that they were missing. And so as he called out Abraham, and he talked about how God um, hadn't given him an inheritance yet, and as he called Abraham out and asked him to come and follow him by faith, in verse 3 of chapter 7, he says, get out of your country and uh, from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And the reason he's doing this is that the religious leaders, as they, they looked at the land, the law, and the temple in particular, they had now taken those things that God had given them, and they had elevated them essentially to a place of idolatry. And he's sort of going back in their history, and he's saying to them, listen, before there was a land... God gave a promise to a man, Abraham, and Abraham walked in faith all those years. And we all look to Abraham as our father. And that was really the point he was making. He's saying, but Abraham didn't possess a land yet. He was a nomad. He was a wanderer. God had not yet given him the blessing. Yet we look to him as the father of our faith. And as he's doing that, he's sort of helping them understand that the idol that they had made of the land of Palestine, of Israel itself that they had elevated it in an unhealthy way to the position of worship. And they had made it a stumbling block for people. Hey, if you're not from Israel, you know, you're not blessed. You're not one of God's people. And they were missing the fact that God was, was using the Jewish people to preach his gospel, the message of who God Almighty was to the surrounding nations. You see, the people, uh, the Hebrews, the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, but yet they had sort of uh, kept it to themselves, and they weren't spreading it to other people. And so as he was speaking uh, about Abraham in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. There's a little principle there about Abraham. And as we go back and we remember Abraham's story, picking it up in Genesis 19, I believe, and we move forward with Abraham's story from there. Remember when Abraham was commanded by God to go get out of his country and from your relatives to go to a land that I will show you, as was sort of a pattern in Abraham's life, there was a partial obedience there in his life. He did leave, he did start to to go, but he didn't fully obey. And then uh, Abraham had this partial obedience, uh, but it says here, uh, and I just want to read this to you, Abraham's partial obedience did not take God's promise away. Instead, it meant the promise was on hold until Abram was ready to do what the Lord had spoken to him. The fulfillment of the promise didn't progress until Abraham left Haran and his father behind and went to the place that God wanted him to go. And the point is, we do this also, don't we? 
with God's promises, things that he's already spoken to us in his word. Maybe as you're praying about direction in your life and maybe God is speaking to you about things you should do or places you should go or or people you should minister to. But if you're sensing that God is speaking to you through his word or maybe he's already speaking to you through his promises and there's areas of obedience, but you're not being faithful to obey him in those ways, you know, God is patient. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. And until we take those steps of faith and obey him, he'll just, you know, persistently wait until we listen to his voice and do what he's asked us to do. And so it was with Abraham. But in verse 5 of chapter 7, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. And he's reminding them as he's telling them here that Abraham was the father of our faith, but he didn't have a land. And so as he was telling them of all of this, then in verse 8 of chapter 7, then he gave him, that is Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so that was another thing that in the Jewish uh, list of things that was a big deal to them, circumcision was, was high on the list. And he's saying, don't you remember there was no circumcision? God gave it to Abraham, and it was a sign of the covenant to you. It's not an outward sign to the nations, it's a sign to you that you belong to God. And then as we moved into that next section, beginning with verse 9, the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So then he sort of takes us to the story of Joseph. And as we, you know, studied that just a couple of years ago now in the book of Genesis, we remember that Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ, that Joseph uh, was given a promise. And Joseph was told by the Lord directly that he would, in a way, in a special and a unique way, become the deliverer of his people. And his brothers and his family didn't take very kindly to that. And, and certainly the way that Joseph had related his dream to them maybe could have been done a, a little bit differently. But nonetheless, that is what the Lord told him. And so we know as we read through this story here that Stephen is taking this story of Joseph and he's emphasizing the spiritual presence of God with Joseph because as we read through it in verse 9, it says, but God was with him. And remember, the things that happened to Joseph were terrible. His brothers took him. They were going to kill him, but they cast him into a pit while they debated what to do with him. And one of the older brothers was pleading for his life. And then this caravan came by on the way to Egypt and they sold him into slavery. And then they killed an animal and took his coat that his dad had given him as a very special gift and covered it in blood and then went back and told their father that a wild beast had mauled their brother and he thought his son was dead. I mean, think about what he did, what they did. It was incredible. And as we go through that story and we think about it, the things that happened to Joseph were absolutely horrible in every sense of the word, yet God was with him. And Joseph as we go back now and we look at the story, we know that he was sort of a type. He was a picture of Jesus. And so Joseph understood the presence of God. God was with him. And part of what he's saying here is that Joseph, you know, there was no temple, right? There still was no land of Israel at that point. But God was with him. And, and we, Joseph didn't need a temple to have the presence of God. 
he had the presence of God. God promised that he was with him. And every time Joseph got into trouble through no fault of his own, God was with him. God delivered him. We remember after Joseph got to Egypt, uh, he was there as a slave. And then all of a sudden he got sold into slavery to Potiphar's house. Potiphar was one of the high-ranking officials in the Pharaoh's kingdom. And then the, uh, he, he was risen very quickly because of his faithfulness and his skill and the favor of God to the top of the household, to the top of the, the structure, managing, Pharaoh, manning, uh, managing Potiphar's house while he was out of town. And then we know the story. His wife lusted after Joseph, the servant, tried to get him to lay with her and to commit adultery with her. But of course, he would not because he was a man of integrity. And he didn't want to offend God, and he certainly didn't want to offend his master, but she was offended and, of course, uh, played a game and, and made it look like that he had attempted to rape her and then got him thrown in jail. So now he's in jail through no fault of his own, through righteousness. He was in jail for doing the right thing. And while he was there, we know uh, God, God spoke with him. He got a little time out. God took care of him. God was with him. And then God delivered him through these other two men who got thrown into jail from Pharaoh's court, ultimately through a dream to come into Pharaoh's court. And then through that series of events, God elevated him and escalated him to the second in command of all of Egypt. And it was through that process that God was now taking Joseph and fulfilling the dream that he had given him over a period of, of, of about 20 years through a number of incredibly difficult hardships. And God was positioning him because God is sovereign and God sees the, the pieces on the chessboard. And as he positioned Joseph right where he wanted him, then the famine hit Israel back home, the, the land of Israel. And now uh, his family comes down to Egypt looking for grain because there was a drought and there was a famine. And as he came down... Just by coincidence, of course, they run into Joseph, but they don't recognize him because now he's dressed like an, an Egyptian. He's been immersed in Egyptian culture. Uh, he has mascara on, his head is shaved. If you've ever saw the movie, uh, you know, the Moses movie, it was made many years ago with Charlton Heston and whatnot, um, you know, the, the garb. He looked like Pharaoh. He was one of Pharaoh's court. So they didn't recognize him, and they had pretty much forgotten about him. I mean, for them, they had guilty consciences. But they weren't expecting when they went down for the famine to find Joseph. And so as they get there now, Joseph becomes their deliverer. And remember the first time Joseph came to them, and here's the part where he's a picture of Christ, and he said, hey, the Lord gave me a dream, and this is what God's going to do. And they became angry, and they, they were going to kill him, of course, then they sold him and all those things. Now, later in life, 20 years later, through the famine, they come to Joseph. And what happens? Joseph becomes their deliverer. Joseph reveals himself to them. And it says there in verse 13, in the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And then, of course, they came down. And so the picture that he's painting, that Stephen's painting by retelling this story, is saying, remember, the first time Joseph came, they rejected him. But the second time they, were, they came to him, or he came to them, it says that he was revealed to them, and then they, they received him. And so the picture should be obvious, right? When Jesus came... You guys rejected him like Joseph's brothers rejected him. 
But now there will be a second time that Jesus will come, and that's what he's leading up to. And like Joseph, you will accept him. You will believe in him. So that's part of the whole story here as he says this. Now we come to verse 17, where we're picking up today. But when the time of the promise drew near, so now he comes to Moses. So he goes Abraham, Joseph, and now he comes to Moses. But the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, and the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph, and this man dealt treacherously. And then he tells us the story of Moses. And so essentially the same thing happens here with Moses, doesn't it? God takes Moses. His favor is upon him. Right when Moses was born, the declaration was made by Pharaoh because the uh, the, the Hebrews were growing in number. He says, kill all the male children. Didn't that happen somewhere else in the New Testament with Jesus? Within two years of his birth, Herod wanted to kill all the male children because he had heard that there was a king that was born, a Jewish king, and he wanted to exterminate that king. So you can see how this was a picture even in Moses' birth of a, being a type of Jesus. And so Moses is taken in in the Pharaoh's house. He's raised by the king. He's educated by the king. And then one day it says in the passage, as we read it, that God put it in his heart to go out to see his brethren, the Israelis. And as he went out, he saw uh, one of them being harshly treated by an Egyptian taskmaster. And it, it just, his blood boiled inside. And in a fit of rage, he went up and he Uh, trying to rescue his Hebrew brother, he ended up killing the Egyptian guard. And the next day, it says, he was out walking and he saw two of the brothers, two Hebrew brothers fighting. And then he went, you know, supposing they would understand that, you know, in his mind, he understood God is calling him to be the deliverer to his people. And as he went to them and he says, brothers, you shouldn't be fighting, you shouldn't be doing this. And they look at him and they say, "Well, well, who made you? the king? Who made you to rule over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the guy yesterday? And in that moment, of course, he became fearful for his life and he fled out to Midian. And so we now know that Moses was 40 years old when this happened. He fled out to the backside of the desert for 40 years. And when his time was up, God came to him and spoke to him and said, you are the deliverer and I want you to go back to your people. And of course, that was the burning bush experience that's found in Genesis chapter 3. And so the Lord now raises Moses up at just the right time. And so as Moses comes back now the second time, you see the pattern that he's bringing here, Moses becomes the deliverer of the people. He goes before Pharaoh. He declares, let my people go. And there's the whole thing with the plagues and the standoff between the magicians and the power of God. And it says there in uh, Acts chapter 7, looking down around verse 31, it retells the story of the burning bush. And as Moses came, so again, remember the land and the temple. Moses meets with God in the wilderness at this burning bush, and he replays that for them, verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. How could God meet with someone not in the temple? But yet this is how God called his servants. 
Verse 33, and the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now come, uh, I will send you to Egypt. And remember the whole thing, Moses was kind of like, well, Lord, you know, I don't really know how to speak. You want to make me, you know, the man who's the deliverer, you know, I'm not really good at all that kind of stuff. And God, of course, brings him a helper. But it says here in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, who made you, where they said, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel See how the angel is capitalized there? Remember the story? Who was it who came and met him at the burning bush? It was a Christophany. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And so it was the Lord himself who met with Moses. And he, God sent him, sent him back to Egypt. And it says there, he brought them out, verse 36. And I love how Stephen summarizes, you know, many, many years of history in a sentence. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So he takes them through in one sentence. Moses goes back, redeems the people, brings them out through that whole event, and then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then it says in verse 37, and you might see the subtitle in your Bible there, Israel rebels against God. This is where it gets interesting. So he's pointed to Abraham as the father of the faith. He's pointed to Joseph as a type of Christ. You know, he came to his people twice. The first time they rejected him, the second time they received him. He's pointed now to Moses as a savior, as a deliverer. And the first time they rejected him and the second time they, re- they received him. And then he comes to verse 37. And this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him, that prophet, you shall hear. And so the fact that Moses said this, he's bringing this forward and he's saying, you remember this, right? And of course, they're all shaking their head. Yeah, they know this scripture. This is a part of their history. It's built into the fabric of their society. And he's now going to say that that prophet that Moses prophesied of would come in the future was Jesus. And see, that's the beauty of what Stephen is doing here. He's using their history to unveil to their eyes who Jesus was. This this was he, verse 38. uh, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, meaning through Moses came the law through Moses came the word of God as we understand it, the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote them. Moses was the one God used to bring us the word of God. Whom our fathers, verse 39, would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So now he's painting the picture. The picture of the human heart but the picture of the Jewish heart. That we always rebel against God. We always want to go back to Egypt. Remember when God brought them out of Egypt? They began to complain bitterly against Moses and the leadership there in the wilderness. They said, you brought us out here to kill us, Moses. We don't even have water. We don't even have food. Remember God provided the manna? Remember God provided the quail when they complained? Remember God brought water forth from a rock? 
Remember how God provided and met their needs. And he wanted to show them that he was their sufficiency, that he was their source of life, that he was their protection. And yet through all of those things, through those lessons, which they understood their history was rich with this, they rebelled against God. They rejected God. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Remember, Moses was up on the mountain hearing from God. God was giving him the law. And while he was up there receiving from God, fellowshipping with the Lord so that he could bring back down to the people the word of God, the blessings of God, the grace of God, they were down at the bottom of the mountain doing what? Complaining, becoming bitter, saying, you know what? We, we want to go back to what was comfortable, to what we knew. We want to go back to Egypt where we had good food. Yes, they laid the whip on our back, but we knew we were going to get three square meals a day. We knew that the land that we were in was rich and it was providing for us and we could deal with the pain and we could deal with the discomfort and, you know, sort of the, that phrase that some people like to quote, the devil you know is better than the one you don't. That sort of became their mantra. And it said they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol. Moses is up on the mountain fellowshipping with God. The, the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory is up on the mountain and they can see it. But in, in the sight and in the presence of God themselves, they chose instead to rebel. Then God, verse 42, turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. So they began to worship creation and the stars. And, and it, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, so the foreign gods, and the star of your god Rephim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." So say, Stephen is taking their history, altering it just a little bit and helping them understand, you know, what was happening with the rebellion of God's people. And then in verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, verse 45, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. I mean, he is just going, rifling through history here. He's going through hundreds of years of history to point out something very important to them. Who found favor, verse 46, that is David, before God, and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. And it says, but Solomon built him a house. And in, in that gap there between 46 and 47 is the life of David. And there's the story of David and Bathsheba and the bloodshed and how David was a man of war. And remember, God said to David, I can't allow you to build me a house because of, of your reputation, because of what you've done, but I'll allow your son Solomon to do it. However, verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? 
So they had taken the land and the law and the temple and they had elevated them to a place of, of holiness. These are sacred And Stephen is standing before them, taking their history, recounting it before them, unveiling their eyes and now showing them how they, as the fathers today, remember uh, Peter said this, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he's trying to help them understand this has been our pattern. You know, we look at our history and we're proud of it, but you see our our history, the pattern of our history is a pattern of rejecting the very God who is revealing himself to us. And and he's pointing out the fact here in verses 49 and 50 that the very temple that they had set up as this sacred place, and they were the curators, you know, it's like a museum, right? They were to protect this place. And instead, he's saying, didn't God say heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool? Who's going to build a house that contained me? So he's helping them try to understand this. And here's an interesting thought for us before we get to the last little end passage of what Stephen was preaching. On a more subtle level, I'll read this to you. Many Christians today do the same thing. It may not be the worship of a literal church building, although that can certainly take place. But it is the confinement of God to one place. In other words, the only place they meet God might be at church or in your prayer closet at home, wherever it is. And as far as they are concerned, God is absent from the rest of their lives. In the minds and the lives of some today, God might as well only live at church. And the idea here for us to consider, just like Stephen was preaching to these fathers of the Jewish nation and helping them understand that they had taken things that God had meant to be a vehicle of grace and revelation and mercy to them, and they had elevated them to the place of idolatry. So we are prone to do in our lives, aren't we? Now we should, in my opinion, come to church. We've been talking about this, you know. I've been using the term essential church as we started going through the book of Acts here, back in chapter 2. You know, the church coming together, fellowshipping, that's important. It is so important for the church to meet together. Because God has desired that the church would be a place where we study God's word together, where we pray, where we love and we support one another. And we take the Lord's table together, communion. And we fellowship. We do those things. We get filled up so we go out into the world and be the light and the word of God to the people in the world. But as is true with anything, we can take it and elevate it to a place of an idol. Maybe God gives us the means to have a you know, really nice car. But then when we get to the place where, oh my gosh, my car got a scratch on it. Right? And then our car becomes an idol. See, we can make an idol out of anything, can't we? Our kids, our family, our kids going to college, our kids playing sports. We can make our houses idols, can't we? We got to, you know, we want to keep keep them up and be good stewards certainly, but sometimes we take our homes and we make them an idol because we want them to be the Taj Mahal. Right? We we want to invest all this money and make them this great wonderful thing, this palatial thing, this center of our comfort. And we unknowingly make these things idols and certainly this is what Stephen is calling them out on. 
And as he's doing this, I believe the Lord is calling us out to consider some of these things in our own lives. What are the things like these spiritual leaders of Israel that we have become blind to? And that we have made idols and that we have said, Lord, no, this is off limits. Lord, you can't have access to that part of my life. But remember, Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man filled with wisdom. And you can see that to me, the brilliance of what, what Stephen is bringing uh, to, to us, to the church, to these spiritual leaders of Israel. And now in verse 51, this is where it gets tough, right? This is where he's like, you know, I'm all in at this point. I know I'm not going to walk out of here. 751, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. It's interesting. In using these two phrases together, he probably had in mind this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where he talks about circumcising the foreskin of your heart and being stiff-necked no longer. You see, they took the whole issue of circumcision and they made it this holy ritual. But the prophets then took it. Paul even took it and said, no, the circumcision was a picture. And if we may this morning, just to make it clear, the circumcision was to remove that foreskin to make a certain part of the body sensitive. And it's a picture of God removing the foreskin of around, around our heart that we might become sensitive to him. Remember, the prophets talk about this. They say, removing the fat from around your heart. The psalmist speaks of that. It says the fat around your heart makes you unfeeling. It becomes like an insulator. And so you need to have the fat from your heart circumcised, as it were, cut away. And in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, name one that God sent that you didn't persecute and kill. And and yet you're proud of this heritage. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, referring to Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You're the guys who are supposed to be the ones who understand. Remember Jesus talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in that famous passage where he talked about being born again? And as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus there, there's that interchange and Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? It's the same thing here that Stephen is saying to this council, the Sanhedrin. You've received the law by the direction of angels, yet you've not kept it. And it's like they've taken the law of God, put it in a museum under a glass with a light shining down saying, look, there it is, it's right there. But yet remember how the prophet spoke and said, the law shall be near you and in your mouth and in your heart and be close to you. And yet they rejected it. They rejected the law of God. They made an idol of the land. They made the temple an idol. And in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, it's interesting. If you did a little word study and you looked up this phrase, gnashing or gnashing at him with, them, him with their teeth, 
The gnashing of teeth is always used in respect to those who are being sentenced to hell. And what happens in hell? The gnashing of teeth. And so this is how angry they were at God using this spirit-filled man to bring the word of God to them. And rather than responding in faith and saying, oh my gosh, we've sinned. Remember earlier in one of the, the sermons that was preached, as uh, Peter came to the end of the, that sermon, they said, well, well, what should we do? And he said, you need to repent. And here, rather than repent, what do they do? They become angry. And of course, they're going to kill Stephen, ultimately. But he just finished telling them, you always rebel, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and that is exactly what they are doing. Verse 55, but he, that is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I mean, this is a spirit-filled man. He's earlier, we we're told back in chapter 6, 15, as, as they were putting him on trial, they, saw, they looked at him, they saw him having the face of an angel, as it were. So Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, made bold, not mean, bold. And as he proclaimed the word of God to them, and he had the courage to speak truth, knowing that it was likely going to get him killed, which is exactly what happened. So again, put that up against your health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, prosecuted, and maybe killed. So there's Stephen standing before them. He's gazing into heaven. God give, is giving him this vision, this heavenly vision. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And yet the passages tell us in the New Testament that Jesus, after he went to heaven, he took a seat at the right hand of God. And here he is standing up, as it were, and people have speculated and theorized about this, and that's all it is. But hey, man, was Jesus standing up to welcome him into heaven? Maybe. We don't know. But he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in that moment, they, they heard that as blasphemous. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. So they're gnashing their teeth, they're screaming, they're putting their hands over their ears, they're tearing their garments, they're losing their minds. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I had remembered reading, and I forgot to, I meant to get this and bring it in to my notes, and I forgot, but there was a, someone who went back and looked at the practice of Jewish stoning. What was that practice like? And I'll describe it from memory as I read it, but it, it, you know, we, I think we think of it as they get in a big circle and the person's in the middle and they all have rocks and they just pummel him until he dies. This was des describing sort of a very judicious process where as they, they form the circle around him, yes, they do, they do throw rocks at him and they hit him, but as they get him down on the ground, they come over to him with like a large stone, a very large stone, and they, they offer him an opportunity to recant. And basically to repent and to, to say, I take back everything I said. And yes, I 
you know, whatever they're, you know, stoning the person about. And if that person does not recant, they take that stone as he's laying on the ground, and they drop it on his chest to crush his chest. So you can see the brutality of this process. And then they give him one more chance, and they take another large stone, a very, very large stone, and if, the, and if he doesn't respond, they drop it on his head and crush his skull. And then they finish him off with the, the stones, pummeling him until he's dead. So it's a brutal process. But in that process, as they do it, they actually give him a couple of opportunities to, to recant and to repent. And so as they took Stephen through this process, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And verse 50 Eight, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So now we're beginning the story of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. But we see that Saul was likely a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a part of this process of putting Stephen to death. He heard the message of Stephen. Saul probably heard the message of Peter and John. So there, there are these things happening now in history in the background that God's working in the life of this man over here named Saul as he's witnessing these things and God's bringing him along. So keep your eye on that because when we get to chapter 9, of course, we're going to come to the story of Saul of Tarsus. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I hope that I'm conscious enough to say that on my deathbed to all who can hear, to my family. And it says, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And you get the picture here, don't you? That Stephen is emulating Jesus Christ, isn't he? Because didn't Jesus, you know, the seven things that Jesus said from the cross and one of those things is he... Is he uh, you know, cried out before he died. He says, you know, you know, Father, receive my spirit. And, and he said to them as they were nailing him to the cross, you know, Father, do not hold this against them for they know not what they do. And we see Stephen being like Jesus. And it says, as it finishes this out, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now in the New Testament, so often when it speaks of Christians dying, God doesn't say they're dead. Because doesn't that have a sense of finality to it? He chooses to use by the power of the Spirit, he says, no, they're asleep. Doesn't Paul say that in, later on in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 where he talks about the rapture of the church and he says, you know, we who are alive and remain will, will rise up to meet him in the air, but we will not precede those who sleep in Christ. So God himself takes this concept of sleep and just applies it. He says, no, you're, you're just sleeping and you're going to wake up in the presence of God. Paul later said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Stephen understood this. And as he knelt down, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them. Look, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he was as much like Jesus as any man has ever been. In the way he conducted himself, the, the, the loving nature with which he gave them the truth, the peace, his face being like the face of an angel, God giving him that vision you know, before he was dying and going to heaven. He, was, he, he sort of opened heaven so that he could see this is where you're going. 
Jesus almost saying to him, as it were, in a few minutes, you're going to be here with me. And so what can we learn from this? Well, there's so much. Hopefully we've learned some of it as we've been going along here. But I just called the sermon, Be Like Stephen. If you want to emulate somebody, look at the life of Stephen. It was really fairly short-lived, wasn't it? Because in chapter 6, he sort of brought into our, our purview, our scope, and we see him, we meet him, and we find out he was this faithful man who was serving the Lord. He was a man who was filled with the Spirit. He was a man who loved God. He was a man full of wisdom. The power of God rested on him, and he wasn't afraid to do what God asked him to do. Because clearly God uh, had him step up from this role of serving to now this role of taking sort of a lead in serving. And now all of a sudden God calls him out into the limelight to take a stand for righteousness. God could do that with anybody. You see, Stephen was just a servant. He was a deacon in the church. And deacon simply means a servant, just doing whatever needed to be done, serving people, loving people. And so God, this is how he works. He, he doesn't look for the most qualified, highly educated, highest GPA, most type A person in the world to use. He uses everybody. He uses the most common people. This is God's method. And so we need to get it out of our minds that I'm not worthy. You know what? You're not. None of us are. We're not worthy of salvation. We're not worthy of grace. We're not worthy of the love of God. But you see, he, he loves you. He died for you. And yet your self-view, your self-assessment may be poor, maybe even accurate. But that's not how God sees you. God sees you as a worthwhile human being. He sees you as his creation. You were made in his image. You were worthy of being redeemed. To him, you are a treasure. He set his love upon you. If there were only one person in the world, God would have died for that one person. If that one person was you, he would have died for you. To redeem you. The word redemption means to buy back from the slave market of sin. It's as you were, and me, we were sold into sin. We were sold into slavery. But God, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has redeemed us from that, that pit, that slavery, and brought us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And his love has redeemed us. His blood, his grace, his mercy. And now, for any one of us who have been the benefactor and the recipient of all of those things from God, one thing that's a characteristic of a spirit-filled person, you see, a spirit-filled person is a condition. It's not a title. It's who we are. It's who we become. And God wants to take the availability of that spirit-filled life and use it for his glory. What you look like, how you think of yourself, what other people may say about you, none of that matters to God. If you want to get whole, if you want to get healthy, read this book because this book tells you who you are. God tells you who you are to Him. Put away those ideas of self-effacement and uh, you know, beating yourself up and you know, I'm, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot or whatever things you might think in your brain. 
Or if you have those thoughts of grandeur, I'm the greatest thing ever, and, you know, people keep passing me over, I should be the president. <laughs> you know, whatever, wherever you are on that spectrum, it doesn't matter. God will, will set that right. You see, we are humble, we're humiliated people because no one can redeem themselves. No one can make themselves holy or righteous. No one can make themselves worthy to God. But God, in his grace and his love and his mercy, he reached down from heaven to you and to me through the person of Jesus to redeem us. And if you today are a redeemed person, you belong to him. He's your master. He's your Lord. He's your savior. Serve him. Be like Stephen. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. We thank you for what you've done for us, what you've done to us, Lord. You have marked us with your blood. You've given us a new identity. You've redeemed us. You've made us your sons and your daughters. You've given us of your spirit. We are indwelt. And if we are willing, we will be filled, Lord. Maybe some of us have fear as we think about these things of, well, Lord, I don't want to do what Stephen did. I don't want to do what Paul and did or what Peter and John did. Lord, I'm afraid of those things. I'm afraid of people. God, would you overcome those things in our lives? Help us to understand that you are greater, you are bigger, that you are holy, you are righteous. And Lord, the best place for us to be is where you want us to be. And if that's in Ukraine rescuing refugees or feeding the poor or helping the sick, Or maybe it's at home raising kids, caring for a loved one, working a job. Lord, wherever we are, make us your people, sanctify us, fill us with your spirit. Let us be a light in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation because one day the music will stop. All things will come to an end and it will only matter. Are we in Christ or are we not? So, Lord, use us as your servants, as your sons and your daughters. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for filling us. Lord, I pray as we close this morning that you would just fill us with your Holy Spirit and that as hearts cry out to you right now that you would do wonderful and awesome and mighty things in and through our lives, the lives of ordinary people who are flawed, who are sinful, who we probably see way more problems with ourselves even than you do because of our own sin sickness. But Lord, help us to see ourselves through the lens of your word, to see ourselves as a son or a daughter who's been redeemed, who's been given everything we need, as Peter said, pertaining to life and godliness. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, you have held nothing back, and you never will from your children. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.